brought to you by Penguin. I'm fascinated by bears and the magic that they bring. We have the Teddy Bear Museum and Trudy Dench agreed to become the artistic director of our Royal Shakespeare Company. We thought, let's create a little Shakespeare Company. So we thought, oh, let's make make a William Shakespeare and he'll, what plays will he write? Well, he'll write King Bear, Muck Bear, The Merry Bears of Windsor. And then as an alternative production, we did a, a version of Romeo and Paddington. It's a bit controversial, but there we are. We did it and got away with it. Hello, I'm Nihal Arthur and this is the award-winning Penguin podcast, where authors let us peek behind the curtain of their creative process by bringing along objects that inspire them and telling us why. You're listening to the second of our two end-of-year specials, where we look back at some of the highlights of 2021. Con Igledon puts his foot in it with a billionaire. Emma Dabbery shows us what's on her shelves. Owen Jones makes it very clear which Keir he named his pet after, and Hafsa Zayan's grandfather sends back her letters. Giles Brandreth crosses Shakespeare with bears, and Ali Smith treasures advice from a favourite writer. So, put your feet up, pour yourself an eggnog, and enjoy some selected cold cuts from the Penguin podcast. In August, my guest was historical fiction writer Con Igledon, talking about Protector, the latest instalment in his Athenian series. Con was famously the first person to top both the UK fiction and non-fiction charts at the same time, all the way back in 2007, and I was absolutely delighted to find out the lengths he goes to in the name of research. That's one of my pet theories, by the way, I should just say. I met a billionaire recently, and I, I don't know many billionaires, but I was fascinated to discover, and I won't mention his name, but he lost his father at 11, and I said immediately. It's funny you should mention that, but both Julius Caesar and Genghis Khan lost their father around that age. And it's so much so that I began to sort of wonder if it wasn't part of the success of very successful men, that they could never get a pat on the back from the man they could no longer impress, that they could never be, they could never know their father's thanks. And that means therefore they overachieve because they can never have a sort of well done kid. Well done, son. Good job. What was his reaction to you saying that out loud rather than just thinking it? As you can tell already from this this interview, I say some things out loud I probably shouldn't. And uh, I don't think he was delighted, if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) It was not one of my finest moments, if I'm honest. Maybe I'm paraphrasing Gloria Steinem, but I think she said the truth will set you free, but before that it will piss you off. And uh, perhaps that's what you did with this billionaire, I think. Uh, maybe you set him free. Maybe you set him I, free. I, oh, I, hope, I hope I haven't annoyed him, you know. <laughs> um, you talked about being a spectator, and of course as an author you are, but you're also, weirdly enough, intimately involved because you're creating the world. Do you have to have that visceral feeling when you're talking about combat? Well, before getting into battles, I mean, the the thing about creating characters is that in real life, you obviously can't see what's going on in someone else's head. But in a book, you can, because you're going to write it. And not only that, but you can have uh, their reaction to other characters and other characters' reactions to them. It allows you to add layers so that after a while, I honestly believed I knew the character of Julius Caesar. In I mean, I was with him for six years, and I had written or thought about him continuously for six years. And I thought, I know this man intimately. 
quickly. And it was very important because there were gaps in the historical record that I had to fill. And so I had to understand why he did a couple of things that he did that were utterly inexplicable otherwise. And it, it, it was useful for me because I felt I knew his character well enough and uh, uh, therefore I could make a pretty decent sort of guess at it. When it comes to the, the physical bit and the fighting, I try to be as accurate as I possibly can be, bearing in mind that there will always be a gap. I haven't ever killed anyone. Um, so I wanted to write one scene where somebody smothers a character with a pillow. And so I asked my wife um, if she would mind attempting to do that to me. Um, so I was going to lie on my back and I was going to slap the floor if I started to pass out or something along those lines. And she was going to try a range of different pillows, actually, to see what would work and how how hard it would have to be. And she was enormously enthusiastic um, about that. Uh, was, That's research. I mean, yeah. good grief. Well... It was necessary, partly because I discovered that it isn't possible. If you push a pillow onto someone's face, you will have seen many dramas, probably in hospital beds maybe, where someone reaches up, pushes a pillow onto someone's face and 20 seconds later pulls it away and the person's dead. In real life, the person will be looking at you saying, what are you doing, Dave? Because as long as you quietly breathe through the pillow... It's completely useless as a murder device. So this kind of thing is kind of important because I, I like to get that you know, that kind of detail as much as possible. I mean, when I went to Mongolia, I got saddle sores, for example, riding ponies. Um, I was told to avoid, ask for a Russian saddle because the Mongolian saddle was made of wood. And the Russian saddle was leather, great, but it had an iron hoop at the front. And I became intimately involved with that iron hoop over a period of weeks when I was doing 20 miles a day. It rubbed me in places I didn't even know I had. It was an interesting part of the experience, that's all. And even little things like the fact that when the ponies, when the ponies lay down and went to sleep, they, they, they did lie down like, like big dogs. They didn't, I thought ponies, I had this idea that ponies had to stand up. Like those elephants in China recently that have been photographed lying down on their sides, I thought horses had to stand up. But these ponies lay down and curled up their legs and curled in their heads and went to sleep. And it was rather adorable. I mean, these things I would never have found out from from books i needed to uh, needed to go there i'm I'm, su I'm surprised that saddle wasn't one of your objects for today well <laughs> i didn't take it home with me <laughs> yeah irish author emma dabbery joined me in may emma's second book what white people can do next was published in april becoming both a sunday times and irish times bestseller we got straight down to talking about emma's first object bookshelves uh, let's get to your first object. Unsurprisingly, for someone who is so well read and that, of course, screams out of every page of this book, it's bookshelves. <laughs> Make bookshelves interesting to me, Emma Dabbery. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so, you know, <laughs> Tell it, me it, they're it, made from some exotic wood or something, at least. They are actually. The, the particular bookshelf I'm, talking, I'm speaking of is made from... Um, salvaged wood painted by my, by my own fair hand um, a dusty pink um, <laughs> but it's more what the bookshelf contains of course so my house is like full of bookshelves and I, I don't have enough bookshelves to store all my books so I actually just have like dusty piles of books towers of books like <laughs> everywhere um but there's one particular bookshelf like um over well there's four shelves but there's like two Two of those shelves just really have the the books that I 
always return to, you know, that are just like incredibly like well thumbed and dog eared and full of post-it notes. And um, they would mostly be books, you know, pertaining to the black radical tradition. So books like Futures of Black Radicalism, The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, and then like post-colonial texts, African studies, literature, um, some some kind of like key books from Baldwin that that I that I refer to often. And actually some white authors like George Lipsitz, who's who I reference in the book, is a is a white American uh, scholar of African-American studies and a really like inspired thinker quite a lot of Mark Fisher as well he's actually on a different shelf because he doesn't kind of he's not kind of in my black radical section but I do refer to um you know Mark Fisher quite a lot as well so um why is a rap on race Margaret Mead and James Baldwin a particularly important book for you you reference it a number of times in this book yeah I'd never read it before because it's out of print I was interested that it was Baldwin in conversation with this white woman who was a very famous public intellectual at the time. And it was them grappling with the kind of burning question of the moment, which was like race and racism and the relationship between black and white. And, you know, as a historian, I'm like, oh, that has such a kind of synergy to what's happening now. And um, I was just like shocked by the by the parallels this conversation is happening 50 years ago it could be happening now you know does it depress you when you read something that's 50 years old and you think so little has changed i mean i feel like the 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 root of the matter has not really been tackled um so i'm not entirely surprised that we are where we are if we could build on the work of our forebears rather than starting again from scratch, I think we'd make more progress. At the same time, I completely don't lay the blame for where we are at the hands of activists and those that fight against these forces. The forces that kind of um, facilitate this are kind of highly organized, deep-rooted, there's a quote from, like, again, George Lipsitz that I'd like to uh, respond to that with. Good intentions and spontaneity are not adequate in the face of a relentlessly oppressive and powerful, well-financed military and economic political system. So, yeah, I don't think diversifying our feeds is going to cut it. The first guest on the podcast in 2021, all the way back in January, was political commentator, journalist and member of the Twitterati, Owen Jones. Owen isn't somebody who is known for being fluffy, but one of his objects certainly was. Yeah, my, my two cats are very, uh, have a very big role in my life. They're named Keir, after Keir Hardy, though lots of people know who <laughs> <I> know, aren't, <laughs> aren't aware of Labour history. He was the first leader of the Labour Party. And Keir Starmer, who's also named after Keir Hardy. Yeah, and, uh, and the other one is Rickman, named after... Named after Alan Rickman. My partner's not political, but is an actor, and and therefore we respectively had to, had a go at choosing a cat name. They're writers' best friends, cats. 
I hate writing, <laughs> which is unfortunate given my career. Yes. What trajectory. a thing to choose to do if you hate doing it. Why do you hate writing? I think lots of writers hate writing, actually. I think you'd be surprised. Well, I don't know. You write as well, don't you? So, I mean. Yeah, well, I'm trying to write a book at the moment and I'm hating the process of it. I there you go. Well, you're again another writer who doesn't like writing. Yeah, I mean, I don't like the solitude. I don't like being stuck in my own thoughts. I like, I like, I like chatting to people. So, interviewing people, that's fine. I like doing that. So, that whole process. And when you finish it, there's that sense of satisfaction sometimes. Often, what I'll do is I'll, I'll sit tapping in a. One of the cats will come and snuggle up, and um, and then uh, yeah, they're they're very integral to the writing process. So I dedicated the book to both of them. The cats don't care. They say, don't they, that uh, dogs have owners and cats have staff, yeah. right? So in that respect, are they expecting you to, you know, Daddy Owen has got to sort it out, right? I want something. I want to hang around with him. Stop writing. Well, I mean, they're Burmese cats. They don't like solitude. They follow you about everywhere, but they always want to snuggle up. They do often want to chat. They're very chatty cats. They are often very distracting, but I, I've got a very bad concentration span anyway, <laughs> again, which is not that good for my for my career choice. But uh, yeah, but I think every person who's a writer, I think who likes cats, that is, I think cat, cats are very integral to the writing to the writing process. Do they help you de-stress, not from writing, but, you know, you can't help but notice anyone that follows you on social media that every morning you will, you know, click open your Twitter app and it's not as if you're going to be hit with a deluge of, gosh, I love you, Owen. I mean, there's quite a bit of vitriol out there, isn't there? I'm currently trending on Twitter this very second because of a column I've written. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, most people are. Most most of the stuff I get is perfectly fine. You know, you get these tribes on Twitter who, well, they have their subsections who are very angry. Uh, I mean, I often get, you know, the worst stuff I get is from the far right, obviously. In real life, I don't get this. Real real life, people just come up to me and really nice. I don't get... You have been threatened. Than, you have been threatened. Well, I've been, public, you know, I've been, beat, I've been beaten and up, been by, beaten up. Uh, yeah. by, by a Nazi. But other than, you know, the times that I've had far-right extremists, other than that time on my birthday, where, to be fair, a far-right extremist beat me up and was sent to prison. I mean, some people come up to me and go, I don't always agree with everything you say, but, but no, I, it's, you know, on Twitter, I definitely get people going... But in real life, not so much. But yeah, cats definitely help de-stress. Do you get a buzz from trending on Twitter? Uh, no, I don't. No, not at all. You know, I never wanted to be. But a doesn't it feed into the machine as such that you no. know whether it be on the right or whether it be on the left is actually as long as you're trending, then you're relevant. As long as you're relevant, there's there's a way of monetizing that relevance. I'd never wanted to be relevant. For relevance sake, I mean, I didn't want to be a writer. I, I, I was someone who have has very strong opinions and I wanted to fight for the things I believed in. And I've always tried to find ways to to fight for those ideas. But that's, what I, that's the reason I do what I do. I've always had um, conflicted opinions about having a profile because I'd never wanted one. And it wasn't like I was like, I want to be a famous writer. I wrote a book about 10 years ago called Charles, The Demonization of the Working Class which got rejected from pretty much every publishing house. And then a small... That's the first time I interviewed you on the BBC Asian Network. I do remember that. It was not, not long after it came out, nearly a decade ago. That'll make us both feel old. Yes. I thought that book, I don't know, you write a book, you don't expect it to do that well necessarily. And then 
I remember it just blew up in a, in a way I I would never have anticipated because I think people wanted to talk about class at the time because there wasn't really a conversation about it anymore. Hafsa Zion also joined us in January. Hafsa has had an incredible year. She was the co-winner of the inaugural Murky Books New Writers Prize and wrote her debut novel, We Are All Birds of Uganda, while also working full-time as a lawyer. The book explores the legacy of Idi Amin's expulsion of thousands of people of South Asian heritage from Uganda in 1972 and tackles themes of not only colonialism and religion, but also identity, something we discussed during the show. My parents were always very, very supportive of me writing. And obviously they were over the moon when I when I won the competition. But I, I don't know that they would have felt the same way if I'd sort of said, OK, I'm not I don't want to do a degree or I, I don't want to do a degree in law or, you know, I just want to go and draw for a living or write for a living. I'm not sure how that would have gone down. There are quite a lot of similarities between, I guess, the Nigerian parental attitude towards what their children should do and an Asian one. Now, I obviously know much less about a Nigerian attitude, but I've heard it over the years many times, whether it be Ghanaian or Nigerian, there is a similar emphasis on education, education, education. Most of my Nigerian family still live in Nigeria, whereas most of my Pakistani, like sort of my mum's immediate family, don't live in Pakistan. Um, And the communities that I was raised in were very South Asian. That is a very, very sort of education, like pride, boastful about your children kind of culture. And so everyone's vying and competing to, to know, you know, to produce the like top lawyer or top pharmacist or top doctor or whatever. Let's go back to your grandfather uh, in Nigeria, because the first object that you've bought today is very much related to him. These are letters, aren't they? Tell us about these letters, Hafsa. Yeah, sure. So when I was growing up, we didn't have sort of instant communications and internet and we just had snail mail. And I, to be honest, even if we'd had instant communications and internet, my grandfather probably wouldn't have used them. Um, but I used to write letters to him. And, um, you know, they would they would take their time to get to Nigeria and it would take even longer to get a response back. Um, but when he'd write back to me, he would always send me my letter back with his letter. And he would sort of have taken a red pen and marked up my letter, corrected the grammar, you know, changed a few words here and there, and just sort of tried to make it a bit of a better letter. I'm talking about when I was sort of like eight or nine years old, so very young. Um, but I kept all those letters and I'm so happy I did because obviously, you know, I think at that age, sort of eight and nine, you don't really you don't ever really contemplate that there might be a day when your grandparents might not be around anymore. Um, But obviously that day does come. And so now um, when I look at them, I just feel, you know, I kind of well up and I feel so emotional looking at them that he was always encouraging me to be a writer. He didn't even know it. (laughs) Mm. How do you navigate what underpins your identity? Are you comfortable merging in and out of different identities? Yeah, it's a it's a very I think identity is quite at least for me it's a very nebulous concept because not only am I obviously half Pakistani half Nigerian I'm also British and I grew up in Saudi and the States and various parts of England and I've always felt like well, I don't necessarily have one place where I belonged and I think you know as I've gotten older it's it's 
it's taken sort of its time and it's come around for me to realize that the thing that makes me feel like I belong somewhere is the family or the people that I'm with. And it's got nothing to do with the place and it's got nothing to do with the kind of, you know, who these people are. It's just, you know, whether they're Nigerian or South Asian or white or British or whatever. It's just to do with, you know, whether I feel you know, like they're my family or whether I, you know, I call my friends my family, like whether I, whether they make me feel like that. And let's move on to your next uh, object, which is a, a paper and a pen. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, why not, I guess. But then saying that, no one writes books <laughs> and a paper and a pen, do they? I mean, not anymore. You know, not no, anymore. Not no. anymore. J.K. Rowling used to write hers on napkins. Oh, okay. Ah, yeah. Oh, okay. But... No, I, uh, so that, that I have or had when I was writing, um, we are, we are all birds of Uganda because I like to kind of map out my character's arcs and my character's timelines and their family trees and kind of like sort of visually or like graphically depict, um, where like parts of my story are going. So it's not stuff that you can do very easily or very quickly um, if you're if you're not like a graphic designer on a computer. So I would always sort of have my paper and pen at the ready um, to plot these kind of graphics of what I saw. Because I find it really I find it really easy to um, understand things when I can when I can visualize them as like drawings. Sounds a bit strange. Um, but yeah, so for me that was like a really important part of, of writing this story in particular because it's very complex and it's very interwoven. And there's lots and lots of sort of details from you know one chapter that might be relevant in chapter 10 or in another story you know in the in the is in like in the other narrative so it was really vital for me to have sort of the ability to freestyle on a piece of paper Giles Brandreth was my guest in September and in typical Giles fashion we talked about a huge range of things well he did but that's right he's the guest from field marshal Montgomery to Victorian hair restorer to jumpers of course And in this next clip, he tells us all about one of his many furry friends. It's a little William Shakespeare teddy bear. Uh, My wife and I founded, we used to have a house in Stratford-upon-Avon, and we founded the Teddy Bear Museum in Stratford, and it was there for 25 years. And it's now moved. It's now at Newby Hall in North Yorkshire. And I've got a thousand or more bears. I love them. Um, it's another example of me never even escaped my, my childhood. And I had a bear called Growler. And I love the teddy bear because it's the first, it was actually, funny enough, it's the first unisex toy. Uh, dolls were always associated with girls and boys had sort of swords and guns in Victorian times, toy guns. And when the teddy bear came along at the turn of the 20th century, it became a universally popular toy. I'm fascinated by, by bears and the magic that they bring. We had this teddy bear museum and Trudy Dench agreed to become the artistic director of our Royal Shakespeare Company. We thought, let's create a little Shakespeare Company. And so we thought, oh, let's make make a William Shakespeare. And he'll what plays will he write? Well, he'll write King Bear, Macbear, the Merry Bears of Windsor. And then as an alternative production, we did a, a version of Romeo and Paddington. It was a bit controversial, but there we are. We did it and got away with it. So the teddy bear... Uh, is a teddy bear. But William Shakespeare is everything to me. The joy of of William Shakespeare being in the same world as William Shakespeare is that if you're a writer, nothing else matters. 
because you're never going to be on air. It doesn't matter at all what we do. It does not matter at all. We all strive. We mean so well. We're so excited. I remember still my first book, my all my books, when they come, I, I love the end papers. I love the smell of the paper. I love opening it. I love the feel of it, the excitement. I mean, seeing your name on the title page, it's all wonderful, but it's nothing. We're nothing. I just marvel at Shakespeare. And I love the fact that we know so little about him. I love the fact that we know so little about him when he knew everything about us. And for me, there's always a moment. I, I go to a Shakespeare play and it always happens. There's a moment, uh, usually about four-fifths of the way through, that cathartic moment when the tears begin to well up. And there is a moment in your life you think, yes, I haven't necessarily been following it all, but it's happened. There's a magic. That man is magic. Ali Smith won the 2021 Orwell Prize for Political Fiction with her novel Summer, the last book in her seasonal quartet. She came on the podcast in February and brought along a quote from one of her favourite writers. I've got a piece of paper on my desk and it says, write me a fresh book. It's something that one of my favourite writers, and I, I'm just loath to say who it is because it's really personal to me. It's a really, it's a, it's like a, it's an engine. You don't give your engine away. I keep it on my desk. Someone once said to me, "Write me a fresh book." So, I wrote them a fresh book. <laughs> what does the word "fresh" mean in this fresh. context? It's like food that has not gone off. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. it's, as opposed you know, to a rotten, mouldy, stinky book. You mean? Yeah. You know, you know what? You know what? When when all those shops put fresh on the outside of a packet, yeah. and, you know, and you can leave that rocket in your fridge, and it's still going to say fresh, <laughs> whether you open it or not. It's still going to say, you know, fresh. You know, in two months' time, that would still say fresh, and it wouldn't be fresh. To take that writer's notion of words and to take the word fresh, for me, it means something alive. That note of a, of spring or of cut grass that's in the air and you, you are you know sensually that it's alive how do you retain the freshness when you're months in and that dialogue has stalled it doesn't it doesn't do that dialogue doesn't stall that's what's exciting about dialogue is that dialogue is is uh, is has that life about it that it keeps going someone says something someone else says something else even if there's a silence the silence says something else i was thinking more about the dialogue between the author and the oh. piece of work rather than the dialogue within the book itself. Because you mentioned right. about that dialogue that you have with the with the process yeah. itself. That's that's a case of keeping yourself fresh and not losing your, your mojo, your confidence, whatever it is that makes us sit down to do it in the first place. Uh -huh. um, you come to it and you do not diss it by not being ready for it. Right. Right. Or up to it. You have to be up to it, you know? Yes. Mm. Uh, are you brimming with confidence? No, never. Absolutely never. It's a, it's a, it's a constant argument. Ah, <laughs> we got there. We got there. Constant argument in yes. my life yes. as to, as to, to, you know, to say anything at all, uh, in, whether written down or out loud. So, what do the disparaging voices say? to the confident voices of Ali Smith? I don't know that there are disparaging... If there's a disparaging voice, I could probably have a, an argument or a just dialogue with it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Often, yeah. there's, often there's, you know, there's, there's, yes. you know there's, it's, not, it's not a case of voice. Uh, voice is always telling a story. That's what's good about voice. Voice will always a, a mean that there's, you know, that there's words that are telling you a story. Even, you know, it doesn't matter whether the voice seems to have no personage. Voice has personage because that's what voice is. So 
And it's 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 much more to do with I think you know your own knackeredness or your own um, preconception or your own I don't know your own your own uh, questioning of what words you know are doing and how to get to them. How easily do you relax your mind? By reading, and I love film. I, I watch a lot of film. Um, Have and, you watched um, Tenet yet? I haven't seen Tenet. I haven't right. seen it. Okay. I'm, I'm longing to see it. Mm. I watched it three times over the weekend to try and get my three time? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, is, did you? What, what did you think the third time? Were you enjoying it? I enjoyed it the first time. Okay, yeah. but I mean, the third time, were you enjoying it? Yes, because Good. I was trying. Well, I was trying to chase it. And this, I guess, goes back to writing as well, is that once I decided to relax into it and mm-hmm. not try to work mm-hmm. out necessarily everything that Christopher Nolan was trying to do in it, mm-hmm. I reveled at the spectacle perhaps more than I reveled at in the narrative. So once you gave yourself over... Yeah, to yes. it, rather than yes. what is it wanting or asking yes. me or what is it that I'm supposed to think about this? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that is relaxing. Yeah. That is, that is like letting go of your preconceptions. That's, that's yes. a wonderful thing. If it's, if, it, if you're liking it the third time round, then this sounds, you know, it's going to, I mean, I knew, I know it's going to be a good film, but hey, third time round on, on the same weekend, you know, the more, I think. That was a bit intense to be fair, Ali. I don't think. Seven was and a half hours of watching it, but you know, <laughs> uh, it's a bit intense to be fair. Did you do it on the trot? Did you do it I, one after the other? I No, I did it. I did it on a Thursday, a Friday and a Saturday. So I didn't do okay. it like in one day. I'm looking forward to it. I have to say. Um, Why? Why haven't you seen it? If you love film, because there was so much talk about it. Because there's a pile of stuff that I want to see. Right. It's just in the pile. Um, so, yeah. no, I will see it. And um, I'm looking forward to it. This last while, I've been watching a lot of silent film. I've just discovered this, this watching these films by this uh, Swedish director called Morris Stiller. And there's a, a long film called The Ghost of Burling Saga. They're so vivid. I cannot believe it. They're extraordinary films. When were were they made? In in the 20s. Uh, And then Stiller, who is the man who discovered Garbo, um, and he took her to uh, Hollywood and then was supposed to be working with her in Hollywood, but decided he hated the Hollywood system, so came home. You know, he died young, and Garbo went on from her discovery in Gusta Berling saga to um, become Garbo. Okay, what emotional connection... Did you find with these films then? Why? Pure story, and yet um, a, a kind of poetry and movement. Silent film from from the get go, from the point at which narrative started to surface in film, um, became about the telling in as little as possible, as as clearly and cleanly as possible of a story by an image followed by another image followed by another image. And the revelation uh, of something languageless, which then has its own language again, and is a kind of description of the language of narrative without without language. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's it, extraordinary. It deeply interesting, excites me. And that's it for this episode and for 2021. The Penguin Podcast is back in January with two special episodes focusing on some of the most exciting fiction and non-fiction debut authors for 2022. Until then, why not curl up with a comforting bowl of figgy pudding and a good book?